Let us pray. God, we do give you great praise for this beautiful day and for these gifts. May they go out, Lord, in order to do your work, your way, and in your will. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, ZPC. And um, as I said a few years ago, one of the things that I always enjoy about this area is you give people a three-day weekend and they will tell you, I think we can get to Morocco and back no problem. And apparently, at least in Zinesville, enough people complained that they couldn't get to Australia and back. And so now we have a four-day weekend here uh, in Zinesville School District. And so uh, it's great. That should be plenty of time. But for those of us who have decided not to go to Morocco or Australia and we are simply here, welcome. Uh, it is good to be here with each and every one of you on this beautiful, sunshiny day. Uh, so what a great blessing that is. Uh, we haven't seen the sun a whole lot. Um, uh, before we kind of dive in, I want to say one thing. Um, uh, back in 2015, so five years ago now, uh, we uh, formed something called a ZAT team, which was the Zionsville ZPC Asset Assessment Team. And that team's role five years ago was to begin to talk to a lot of different ministry teams, staff members, uh, laity, and begin to say, how are we doing in our ministries? And as a part of that, thus the asset assessment team, how's our property doing at helping us with this? And so we talked to folks, all different age groups, uh, second half adventurers, mops, um, um, let's see here, what else? I almost said a ministry that we had in Chicago. Uh, let's see here, who else did we talk to? Folks from Great Banquet. Um, lots of different folks. And out of that, we began to say, okay, there are some needs that we're beginning to see. And so then like around 2016 or 17, some of those needs, by the way, we could take care of very quickly. Some of them were clearly more long-term. We're going to take more of an investment. So around 2016 or 17, we developed another team to say, let's start looking at this more seriously. They began to do that which culminated then into a property team, and they went out and talked to more and more of our folks, again, from some of these same places and then other ministry teams. And throughout all of that, we've finally gotten to the point where now, in 2020, because there's no reason to do something fast if you can do it really slow, we are finally at the place where we get to have this great opportunity to share with you as a property team, as the session, as the leadership, what we've kind of taken from all these conversations that we've had with you all and as we've prayed and discerned about this, to be able to say, this is where we believe the Lord is leading us. And so on March 15th, which is the Ides of March, which is a little nerve-wracking to me, but we are going to gather... Uh, here, we've done something similar to this, where we, we gather in order to have a meal uh, at 5 o'clock in the gym, uh, which is just a great time to kind of sit down together, get to know some folks, maybe some you know, some you don't know. And then we'll come in here around 5.45 in the sanctuary, and, and we, me, and, and some of the folks from the property team will make the presentation. Now, I want to be very clear here, and I'm going to have to say this again and again, and I want you to tell your friends, yes, I did say this, if, you, if they forget, which is this, we are not voting on anything this night. We're not going to show you this thing and then say, all right, what do you think, yes or no? No, no, no. We're going to make the presentation and then we're going to have two or three different informational uh, meetings after that in the weeks to come. We're going to give plenty of time for you to ask your questions. Um, and then some point, late April or early May, it looks like, we will then have a congregational vote where everybody can kind of come in and vote. So are we going to be voting on March 15th? 
No, there you go. Good. Now, some of you are going to come and say, I thought we were voting tonight. No. But we are going to come and, and be able to hear this. So I invite you. I encourage you. I challenge you. I implore you. I beg you. Come to this meeting on this night to be able to hear more about what we believe the Lord is calling us to. We are excited about this, and so I hope and pray that you will be there on March 15th. So you can sign up online starting next Sunday. We'll actually have a table where there will be elders, and you can go and sign up as well. All right. And so with all of that, now we are back to the Gospel of John. Now, Today, we're going to look at the fourth chapter. Uh, last May, I'm sure that some of you, as soon as I said John 4, were like, wait, I thought you preached on this recently, maybe last May. I did. Um, but I focused on the disciples when they returned um, um, to the conversation that Jesus was having with the woman at the well. This is certainly one of the more famous stories in the gospel of John. And so we are not going to look at that particular part, but we're going to look at the first 30 verses and then the last Four verses. And so I invite you to hear these words from John. John says this Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will, be, will uh, become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with the woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? And the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah. Can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Then skipping down to verse 34, many Samaritans, or 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do gather on this beautiful day. We are reminded of a story, Lord, that many of us know well. We pray this morning not for new insight, but for the insight to go perhaps even deeper than it has before. That your word might spring forth like the waters gushing out of a spring. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, this is, I believe, the longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the whole gospel of John, which means, of course, that there's some significance, that John wanted us to understand and to really explore the importance of this story, what it tells us about Jesus, what it tells us about ourselves. And so this morning, uh, I just want us to kind of slowly go through and kind of chew on this passage to make sure that we're understanding exactly what is happening Uh, You may recall last week in our scripture passage that Jesus and John the Baptist, that they were both both ministering in the same area. And so we're told here that Jesus is leaving. He's going to leave Judea. He's going to go to Galilee. We're not told why, but we can surmise that Jesus understood that if he stayed there very long, the Pharisees were not going to allow him to continue to minister as he had been doing. And so he decided to leave. In fact, what it says is that He needed to go, and he needed to go through Samaria. Now, if you've heard this story before, you know that usually it's very well attested that he didn't actually need to go through Samaria in order to get to Galilee, or at least he didn't need to go through the heart of Samaria. And so probably what John is telling us is not so much that this was a physical need in order to get there from one place to the next, but a spiritual need. It's this remarkable image, it seems to me. That the gospel, that the gospel is always called to go, not just to the places we want to go, not just to find the people that we like, or even to go to the places where the people like us, the gospel is called to go even to our enemies, even to those places that are so dark that we think there can be no light. And so Jesus walks to and through Samaria. 
Around Sychar, we're told, Jesus gets tired, and so he sits down by a well. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I hear about Jesus getting tired, it always makes me feel a little weird, uh, because I don't like thinking about Jesus growing weary. It doesn't seem right. And, and as we said before, Jesus, we, we like the fact that he's fully human but, or fully God, but it's always a little weird for us to think about Jesus as being fully human. We don't like this thought of Jesus being vulnerable, I don't think, but it's this sign again of what Jesus was willing to do in order to be with us. And it's this sign that oftentimes, if you want to be in relationship, or especially if you want to have a deep relationship with somebody, that you oftentimes need to be in a place of vulnerability, a willingness to be open and vulnerable with others. I want you to keep that in mind as we continue into this story. So there's Jesus, vulnerable, and he's sitting at this well. The disciples have gone into the city in order to get food. And a woman begins to come up to the well. Again, you guys know this story, most of you. You know that usually you don't go to the well at high noon. Why do you not go at noon? Because it's hot. It's hotter than blue blazes, right? So you don't want to go at noon. And the only reason why you go at noon is if you hope that you will see nobody. Right, So the only reason you go, typically, is if there's some reason that you don't want to see anybody, oftentimes, as we understand the fullness of this story, because of some shame, some embarrassment, some sin, some brokenness, whatever it may be. But you go to a place and you don't want to see anybody. It reminds me a little bit of, of, of Mondays. Mondays are my day off. I love having Mondays as my day off. You should try it sometime. It's not many people's day off, because most people are normal and they have regular jobs. But I love Mondays because part of the reason is is that when you go places there's nobody there it's so wonderful you don't have to see people you don't have to talk to people because you know people are like living there you know they got jobs and so they're they're doing those things and I'm there it's wonderful except for weekends like this one and it is so annoying because I go to places, I oftentimes forget it's a three-day weekend, and I go to places on Monday, and I'm like, what are you people doing here? Right? And I, I mean, I, I say, I don't want to talk to anybody. Now, if it's any of you, I'm more than happy to see you. I love to talk to you. But if it's somebody else, I don't want to talk to you. I just want to be alone. And so think about this woman. She's used to coming every day to the well at noon because there's nobody there she has to talk to. There's nobody there who's going to see us. And all of a sudden she sees this man off in the distance at the well that she has to get to. She doesn't want to keep going, but she knows she has to because they need water. And so she keeps going. And so you can get a sense of just how annoyed she is by his presence. But whether she wanted to talk to him or not, Jesus didn't care because he's going to talk to her. And so he does. He's like, hey, can you give me some water? And I think you hear some of her annoyance for lots of different reasons in her response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And here, just to make sure that we get exactly what's going on, I love John. He, he parenthetically tells us, oh, well, you should know. Jews and Samaritans, they don't share anything. 
Sure enough, Jesus doesn't care, and he's not even bothered, actually, by her response. He's very nonplussed. He just says, basically, look, if you had any idea of, the, of what you're looking at and what you're staring at, this is a gift of God. If you, knew, if you knew what you were doing, you would ask me for living water. Now, what's living water? Well, living water in that day and age was anything that was moving, water that was moving. So that would have usually been like a river or a stream or a brook. Which, of course, in a desert land is incredible, right? And so she's thinking, oh, my goodness, this guy may have some kind of secret brook or river that I don't even know about. And then he goes on and he says, you know what? And if you drink this, you don't ever have to drink again. And I, she's still not really thinking in spiritual terms, obviously. She's still thinking more in physical terms. But I want you to hear, because I'm not sure we always do, exactly what she says to him. She says, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or, hear this, have to keep coming here to draw water. I want you to hear in these words, not just, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to come labor here. I don't have to walk all this way anymore. I want you to hear as we know the fullness of her story. That when she says, I don't have to keep coming back here to draw water, what she is also saying is, I don't have to keep coming back here at high noon where the reason why I don't have to keep remembering every time I walk here at hot, when it's so hot, I don't have to remember that the reason why I'm doing that is because of my past. If you mean that I don't have to keep walking here where every single day I am reminded that the reason I'm here at high noon is because because how my past is affecting my present. Are you saying, sir, that I don't have to walk here every single day where every step I take toward the well and every step I take back home, I am reminded that I have no future, it seems, because of my past and because of my present. Every single day when she walks to that well, she is reminded of her shame and her brokenness every single day. And for perhaps the first time in as long as she can remember, there is a glimpse of hope. But Jesus, he doesn't let her stay there. In fact, he kind of lassos her back to reality. Uh, Why don't you go, he says, and tell your husband and then come back. She says very succinctly, I I don't have a husband. And, And you almost get a sense, don't you, that what she wants is to keep moving on in the conversation. Let's just act like you didn't even ask that. Let's just keep moving. When I heard that, what I was reminded of is in my own life and having spoken to many over the last 15 years of being a pastor, how frequently those who are a part of some kind of brokenness, divorce, relational difficulty, affairs, whatever else it may be, whatever it is, how with great frequency the offending party by and large, wants to quickly move on in the conversation. I have talked to so many folks who have just said, well, can't we just be done with this? Can't we just move on? Why do we have to stay talking about this? Let's just, let's just move on. And while certainly at some point you need to be able to move forward, the truth is this. Until you have admitted something, 
until those or the offending party can take responsibility or ownership in that truth, there is no reconciliation or healing, neither with one another nor with Jesus. It is only in moments when we are actually able to confess that we then can move toward a new future. Jesus, he knows this, and so he's not just moving on. What does he do? He says, oh, you're right. However, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now, well, he's not actually even your husband. Now, I want to take a brief pause here to point something out about this woman uh, as I had always heard it, and, and perhaps it's true, that typically when we think about this woman, what we think about is, well, she's clearly done a lot of things wrong in her life. Look at her. That's how she ended up right here. This is just brutal. I mean, she was just going through men like nobody's business, and now she's living with someone who's not her husband. I mean, my goodness, what is wrong with this woman? But what that doesn't take into consideration is the reality that women in that day and age had very little, if any, power at all. And in fact, they could not get a divorce. It was the men, of course, they were the ones who could actually divorce the women. And so it is also very likely that at least for some of these husbands, it was not perhaps her doing anything, but it was the man saying, well, I think I'm all done over here. Let's go over here. And all of a sudden he's done with her and she's the recipient of sin and brokenness and shame. John nor Jesus give us any detail as to why she was in the situation she is in. And so in my own mind, in the midst of this ambiguity, I would suggest that perhaps we could see her both as someone, yes, as we all have, who has sinned and who has offended, but also, let us keep in mind, someone to whom she has been offended, a victim oftentimes of her own situation. And so she's in the midst of the shame, the sin, this brokenness. And again, do you notice what she does? She moves the conversation on. She begins to talk about temples. Oh, well, um, yes, it's true. It's true. Five husbands. Which temple should we preach? Which temple should we worship at, Jesus? Should we worship at this one in Samaria or, or at the one in Jerusalem? Right? Which one is, is best? Right? I, I love this again. No one likes to talk about their own weaknesses or struggles. And our own desire for self-defensiveness and self-preservation is remarkable. I notice this all the time in my own life. When Megan points out things that I have done wrong, I know it's hard to believe that, but I am not perfect. Do you know what the first thing that comes to my mind? I don't always, I've gotten a little bit better. I don't always vocalize it. But the first thing that comes to mind, if today on February 16th, 2020, she says to me, Jerry, this is something you did wrong. My first thought is, and it's amazing, the, 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 the brain's ability to hold on to memories of when people have done something wrong to us. Oh, you think that's bad, babe. Let me remind you of what happened on February 6th, 2007, when you did this to me. Right? Or if that's not good enough, what about February 16th in 2009? I remember. 
And how quickly all of a sudden the initial reaction or response is to want to take the light off of you and say, well, we'll think about the time when you did this. Anyone else ever do that? A bunch of liars. So <laughs> this just gives you something to confess, right? It is a very natural response to want to take the limelight off. We don't even have to deny that we've done something as long as you can put the light on something else. We don't have to wrestle with it. So sure enough, as soon as Jesus points this out to her, she says, shiny temples, let's talk about those. Jesus, he, he allows her to do this for a little while. He goes on and he begins to talk about the temples briefly. And he points out the fact that at the end of the day, it's not actually about either temple. It's really about, are you worshiping God in spirit and in truth? And if you were here back in, when we we're talking about John 2, it's a continuation of the story of the temple. When Jesus went into the temple and he, he threw over everything, he's saying, no, the temples don't matter anymore. That's not what is significant. What is significant is whether or not you are worshiping God. It's no longer, God is no longer relegated to one particular building. And then, then she brings up the Messiah. She's already amazed by this guy, it seems to me. She already realizes that as soon as he heard that he already knew everything about her, all of her sin and her shame, and yet he hasn't left, nor has he tried to take advantage of her in any way. He simply sits there and continues to engage. Then at this point, when she brings up the Messiah, Jesus says this, I am he. The one who is speaking to you. And I hope that when you hear that, what you hear is kind of the climax of this story. It's almost like time stands still. Because at that exact moment, John tells us, the disciples return and they are aghast. And just picture like a photo of this particular scene right here. And the disciples, some of them are looking at Jesus and their mouths are wide open. Some of them are looking at, their, at this woman, their mouths are wide open. Some of them are looking at each other and they're all wondering, what is happening? Jesus is looking at this woman like a father to a beloved child. And the woman is looking at a future that only moments before she thought was absolutely untenable. And in that moment, she began to realize that perhaps she was loved. In that moment, she began to see that everything was changing. And so all of a sudden, she jumps up. She jumps up, and I hope that you experience this. Remember, we talked about how John likes us to experience things because she jumps up. And, and picture the difference when she walked to the well under the heat of the day. And picture her. She's not running. She's walking. She's shuffling. She can't believe it. She sees this guy, this Yahoo who's here. Why is he here? All of that sin and that shame. And all of a sudden, she springs up. And what does she do? She leaves. John tells us she leaves that water jar back and she begins to run 
towards the people. She leaves behind the burden of the noonday walk. She leaves behind her sin. She leaves behind her shame. And she begins to run to tell the people. She runs to people that just minutes before she would have hidden from. There's this sense of freedom from someone who has been freed from their burden of shame and brokenness. All of a sudden, she begins to understand the one who loves her unconditionally, the one who loves her, even though he knows her shame and her sin. She realizes that perhaps even one who it seems is unembraceable as she is can be embraced nonetheless. I just got done watching uh, two popes, and there's this one line that as I heard it, it seems to me in many ways personifies this story. It's this simple line right here. Truth is vital, but without love, it is unendurable. Truth is vital. It's not like he all of a sudden didn't know what had happened. It's not like she didn't in some way have to say, hey, look, this is my life. This is the reality. But here is the reality is if all you know is the truth, if all you know is where you have come up short, if all you know is what has happened to you, then it is unendurable without someone who is also at the same time willing to embrace you and love you in the midst of that. And so she begins to run back in order to tell all of them what happened to her. And I love this part of the story. This is the part of the story I really want you all to hear this morning. Do you hear this incredible witness that she is? It is the most unlikely witness, and she is what would seem to be the most ineffective witness of all time. Because she runs back and she says, I just met this guy who knows everything I ever did, right? Which for one, your initial thought would be, well, let me get away from that guy. And then secondly, what did he say? She say, this could not be the Messiah, could it? That's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Right? I mean, this is much less, hey, here are 10 reasons why I know Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and much more, I don't know. All I can tell you is this. He knows everything about me. He didn't reject me. He still seems to love me. Please, someone come tell me whether or not this is real. It's this beautiful sense of what a witness is. We oftentimes think, well, if I'm going to witness to who Jesus is, I've got to know everything. I've got to have all my ducks in a row. I've got to make sure that I'm just hitting on all cylinders, all those things. Not so. This woman goes and says, I don't know, maybe, come see. Ben Ritherington says, this isn't so much a woman pointing to Jesus, but a woman pointing toward Jesus. You see, here's a part of what it means to be a witness, is to simply bring people into your orbit, Right? Whether that's inviting them into your home where you think Jesus is, whether that's inviting them to a great banquet or awakening, whether it's inviting them to, to worship or to get some, no, some other uh, uh, followers of Jesus, you bring them in and you let God do the work. It's not up to you. We bring them toward Jesus. And amazingly enough, it seemed to work because these people were like, whoa, okay. And so many of them went out Again, not because she answered their questions. She was the one asking the question. 
Sometimes the greatest witness is saying, I don't know, but let's just try to figure this out together. And they went out. Why? Well, I'm guessing they went out with her because they knew who she was. And they thought, hey, well, man, alive, if she's loved and is excited about this, we know how dry and parched she was. And so maybe there's something there for me as well. And it's this sign that those who are dry and full of shame and sin and brokenness and fear, if we can point them to the well where Jesus resides, that everything can change. See, I, I think that this is really important for us to keep in mind. I, I want to say two things. One, I know that there are those here this morning who wrestle with their own brokenness, their own sin, and their own shame. And if that is you, and if you have the courage to admit it, then I hope when you read this story that you will keep reading it all week, that you will picture yourself as the woman walking to the well and that you would know that, yes, truth is vital, but that it is unendurable without love. But the second thing I want to say to you is something I have said to you must be at least 10 times. Well, I'm going to say it again because I know that most of you don't believe me. And that is that we have a unique opportunity in this community to be a witness to a group of people all around us who are wrestling with sin and shame and brokenness. And yet they or we are completely unaware. You see, we talk a lot around here about, uh, about the bubble of our area the bubble of Zionsville, the bubble of Carmel, the bubble of, of Northwest Indianapolis. And oftentimes what we're talking about is the distance between ourselves and most other normal folk in the U.S. or across the globe. And it is true. It affects us and we can become easily complacent. And a part of our call as followers of Jesus is to get outside of that bubble with great intentionality in order to go out and to be able to remember that how we live is not how everyone lives. And it can distort our perception. That's a part of our call. What I don't think we pay attention to is this, that the bubble causes not only distance between us and those outside of the bubble, but between us and those within the bubble. You see, I think that most of us think when we look at our neighbors or our coworkers, we think they are wrapped with bubble wrap. And that if you look like everything is going well and it looks like everything is great for you, then you must be protected from everything, from all brokenness and all sin and all shame. And man alive, I mean, I mean nobody here, nobody here needs to hear about this wonderful Jesus who forgives, who loves, who cares. Because man, look at it, they're, they're doing just fine. And you're right. When you look around, you don't see a woman or a man at some well at high noon. But I want you to know that we have people throughout our community, some of them are you, who are hiding every day in plain sight. Maybe it's the woman sipping the $6 drink at Starbucks. Do you know how easy it is to hide at Starbucks if you have a $6 drink? Nobody notices you. 
And maybe that's exactly how you want it because you don't want anyone to know about your husband who's just confessed to an affair, about a child who's wrestling with drug issues. You don't want to stand out in any way. You want to blend in perfectly so that nobody asks you anything of any actual depth. Or maybe it's the man who's driving by in the tinted Tesla or the beautiful BMW or the marvelous Mercedes, and they are driving by you so fast, and you think, wow, look at that guy. And what you don't know is that they are hopeful that if I can drive fast enough, if I can be just successful enough, I can outrun the memories of the abuse that I received as a child. And they may not even realize what they are doing. Or maybe it's the kid who keeps excelling at every single sport, every academic. I mean, this person has it all. And what we don't know is, is what he or she realizes is that if they just keep doing well, that nobody will notice them, that they won't stand out. Because the only time you stand out around here is when you stink at something. And so you won't stand out, which means that perhaps nobody will ask about the loneliness and the desperation and the depression and the suicide that you are wrestling with almost every single day. But it remains hidden under every success that you have. That doesn't mean that everybody who goes to Starbucks or everybody who drives a Tesla or a Mercedes or every kid that succeeds is wrestling with this. But I am here to tell you, if you want to be like the woman at the well and hide, you do so by doing really well at everything. And I know it's the case, and I keep bringing it up because I know so many of your stories. One of the gifts of a job like mine or Scott's is that we get to hear these stories. You know what I'm most impressed by? is how high-functioning so many people are who are struggling with so much. And I don't know whether to applaud it at times or whether to mourn. Because with great frequency, the only time I even think about it again is when you come down and I have this cup and I tell you that this blood was shed for you and I look into your eyes and then I remember your story. And I remember how important Jesus is to that story. Part of the call of this congregation is to be so embedded in this area that we are a group of people who are not afraid to burst that stupid bubble. That separates us from one another. It looks different than it did with Jesus at the well. But it is still people hiding, afraid to face the truth. And people who will only face that truth if they know that they will still be loved. I should probably end this right here. 
But my fear is that this is such a spiritual sermon that you will walk out of here saying, but what do we actually do? How do we actually do something different? So let me tell you in three minutes, three things to do. One, think about Jesus. He, he went into a place he didn't want to go to, probably, or at least a place we wouldn't have wanted to go into. It will always be difficult. You want to have a deeper conversation with people and get beyond the superficiality that is so comfortable, it is going to be difficult. Make no mistake. Two, he asked her for something. I read this a long time ago. I can't remember where I read it. I said, if you want to get your, to know your neighbors, go ask to borrow something from them. And it works. I mean, I, I, this was probably four years ago. I had a neighbor I hadn't talked to that much. He didn't seem like he really wanted to talk. My lawnmower was broken. My grass was getting so long. There were monkeys swinging in between the blades. It was horrible. And so at long last, I finally had to go ask him for his lawnmower, which was incredibly demeaning. In our culture, this isn't what we do. You just go buy another one, put it on a car, do whatever you have to. But I didn't want to do that. And it was amazing how much all of a sudden then we, get, we got to know each other. We had a more meaningful conversation than we had ever had because I simply went over and said, can I, can I borrow your lawnmower? This is super embarrassing. I think he was very happy to give it because he saw the grass. <laughs> Don't be afraid to let people know you need them. It opens up conversations. And finally, lead with your own vulnerability. Lead with your own openness. I shared this a few years back when, my, uh, when I was doing my doctorate. My second year, we were in this class. There was about 15 of us, I think. And we had this professor, uh, we, had a, we had a visiting uh, lecturer, and she was talking. And after five minutes, I had no idea what she was talking about. I was completely lost. But I looked around, and everybody else was like, oh, yeah, no, oh, yeah, that's good. And then when they laughed, you know, when, when she said something that I guess was funny, they all started laughing. Right? Have you ever done this? And so I was like, <laughs> But I didn't know why they were laughing. I didn't know what was happening. It was super embarrassing. And so at the end of it, all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the, she leaves and the professor's there. And he said, what do you think? And we were all, you know, everyone's like, oh, that was really good. Really deep. And I was like, mm-hmm, super good. It was super embarrassing. I was like, I am a moron. All of a sudden, a guy named Daniel says, I got to tell you, I have no idea what she was talking about. And I am telling you, it was like a spigot had been turned on. Because in a moment, all of us were like, oh yeah, we were clueless. You didn't know either. And all of a sudden, all of this conversation, right? It was like a river, like water coming out of a spring. It was remarkable. All of us were like, oh yeah, we had nothing. And why did we begin to open up? Because one person, that's all it took, one person said, I got to tell you, I don't have it all figured out. I got no idea what's going on. And it was inviting for all of us to begin to say what we actually were thinking and feeling. One person is all it takes. My hope and my prayer is that each of us would go out and would know that there are those in our midst who need to be reminded of the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. 
to know that while truth is vital, truth without love is unbearable. May we be that reflection. Might we see waters gushing out like a spring. Let us pray. God, we give you praise right now for the ways in which you speak, even today. Give us the truth. But make sure it is given to us in love. For we cannot bear it without. It's in your name we pray. Amen.